This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. We leverage the power of our people and our products to improve the state of the planet together with our customers. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability. This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, MasterCard and the Priceless Planet Coalition, a prestigious health journal takes on climate change, the world's first reef credit system, and how do you avoid getting distracted and stay focused on the mission? We're putting on blinders this week on 350. It's December 11th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me from a wintry Midland Park, New Jersey, is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Burr. It's cold. Yeah. It's cold outside. You got, little, yeah. you got a little snow there this week, right? Uh, it, it, it's, yeah, I mean, this is the first sort of more than a f- minor flurry. Um, I don't know if it's going to really stick. It's kind of trying to stick, but it, yeah, it's... Um, it does look gray and wintry, which is okay. It's December after all. It's supposed to do this. We had 77 degrees hmm. in Oakland uh, earlier this week. Wow. Um, now it's down to a you know normal 60s, but yeah, it just was like, really? But I will tell you something that warms the cockles of my heart, which is an announcement that we had this week about uh, you and the WSLA, the Women in Sustainability Leadership Awards. Uh, talk a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah, so this uh, this awards group, um, it's actually an alumni group of the awards, past award win- winners. And they've actually broken off from their uh, previous life. They, they used to be affiliated with another organization and have created a nonprofit dedicated to the mem- you know those that have won the awards. And we're gonna be their media partner. So we're gonna help with, uh, basically publicizing these awards in the future and uh, in writing about the, the people that, that uh, are, are being recognized. And what are these awards recognized? Well, <laughs> clearly, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Women uh, in, in sustainability roles at companies all around the world. And one of the things that I've been on about and, and as, a, as a board dire- a director I'm, I'm going to help with is, is bringing more diversity diversity of region, diversity of race and um, of background, of, of, of uh, economic background. So exciting. It's a really exciting time. So this has been going on for how long? I think there's 87 past recipients, but how many years has this been in, in a thing? You know, that's a question I cannot answer exactly. <laughs> and I hate to say it, but uh, but it, I think I think something like 10 years or maybe eight Eight years back into 20, 
2014, I, I, I can remember at least. So maybe it's six, six, six or seven years. But yeah, I mean, long enough, but, uh, but not long enough, right? We should be doing this even more. So I'm excited to, to keep, the, keep the franchise, if you will. And uh, there will be a call for entries for the 2021 edition uh, in, in January. Yeah, in January. Yeah. And, and speaking mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. uh, I actually don't know when you do, is we will also be putting up the uh, uh, call for entries for our 30 under 30, the class of 2021. Our, I guess this is our fifth annual cohort. When when is that Six. happening? Sixth annual. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that... Call for nominations will go up next week. Uh, it, I'm not sure exactly what day. Maybe I'll put a fork in it and say the 16th of December. We're going to be uh, taking nominations until late January. But we've got a lot going on, as we've been talking about here on the podcast. And I wanted to get this out before the holidays so that people can be reflective over the holidays. I know a lot of people do year-end thinking and planning and organizing. This is a great opportunity for you to think about the uh, rising stars in the sustainability profession that that should be recognized uh, and obviously under 30. So (laughs) uh, I'm excited about this. And um, yeah, it's a little earlier than normal, but why not? Yeah, well, that's coming up next week. But let's stick to this week and the Week in Review. So we love this story that uh, contributor Jesse Klein did about uh, the f- world's first reef credit system put forth by uh, the uh, global bank HSBC. Um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, how do we look at the credits that basically mitigate the degradation of, of the Great Barrier Reef and, and other reefs around the world? Um, you know, similar to carbon credits, these are credits that help fund uh, practices that that maintain or even possibly restore some of the reefs because they do grow back. There'll probably be reef offsets at some point, but right now these are reef credits. So I, I yeah. think this is a, a big move forward. Yeah, this is a, a project uh, that was developed by an Australian organization called Green Collar. So Obviously, they care a great deal about the Great Barrier Reef, and HSBC was uh, in on the ground floor helping them develop the system. And what they're basically doing is giving credit to farmers who are uh, farming with uh, both both animals and, and, and doing plants as well above the reef. So this water, it's called the Great Barrier Reef Catchments. And uh, the water runs off into the reef with nitrogen, other sediment, and so forth. And so what they're trying to encourage is essentially regenerative agriculture. And instead of a carbon credit, they're getting a reef credit. Um, so it's just a really creative and, and thoughtful, I think, idea. Um, the, the particular culprit here is fertilizer, right? And, and they're growing everything from sugarcane to avocados and tomatoes in this area. So super idea. Um, one, I, I for sure think we'll, we'll get, especially those in the region, right, um, to, to think about different, different ways of, of addressing climate issues um, in, in very creative, uh, creative ways. So, yep. Yeah, that's a great story and a great uh, new kind of way of thinking about restoring something that desperately uh, is on the wane and needs to be restored. Uh, but let's turn to another story that's, uh, I guess, uh, this week we, we uh, commemorated the fifth anniversary of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, 
Yeah, technically tomorrow. Yeah, technically tomorrow. on Saturday. Okay, so we're right. Yep. we're mm-hmm. right, uh, right there at the fifth anniversary. Either way, and and, and it's caused a certain amount of uh, of uh, environmental navel gazing, if you will, in terms of <laughs> where we are and have we made the progress of the first five years that we had hoped. Um, this is a piece from Michael Holder uh, over at Business Green in the UK, uh, looking at uh, sort of an analyzing of where we are. Um, but, uh, you know, in addition to this piece, I was struck by uh, on Wednesday this week, um, the UN Environment Program put out some findings that I um, think got a lot of play that, that said that we need to reduce carbon footprint, uh, excuse me, the world's wealthy will need to reduce their carbon footprints, our carbon footprints, by a factor of 30 to put the planet on a path to curb climate change. And, and the richest 1% of, you know, as I think most people know, or at least if they don't know the exact statistic, they know the gist of it, that richest 1% is, is, is uh, uh, has an impact that's more than double those of the poorest 50%. And, and we have to shift that balance. That means, uh, you know, lifestyle changes and air travel and, you know, more renewable energy and electric vehicles and better public planning and transit and all kinds of things. And this, this is part of the UN's annual emissions gap report. You know, I have a question for you. Maybe you know this. I don't. But is there a sort of a Paris Agreement pledge for individuals? I mean, just generally speaking, I mean, we've heard cities and states and businesses, of course, have said we're all in, we're in, right? And even though technically it's a an agreement among countries, among nations, but is there such a, a, a framework for individuals? Maybe there should be one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, there should be, uh, at least in the, in the, United States, um, uh, consumer spending drives 70% of the economy and presumably uh, a similar part of the, uh, of the carbon footprint. But no, I haven't seen that. And I mean, there's certainly lots of, you know, lots of, of different entities that have, you know, make your climate commitment. Here's the simple things you can do or the many cases, not so simple things you can do. But, you know, as we've seen, and you know, I don't want to get started too much on the sort of the consumer behavior piece that I've been looking at for thirty some years now, uh, and have and continue to have very little faith in the willingness of consumers to change much. I think a, a lot of this has to be driven by the nature by two things: one, the nature of the products and services, and and how they're delivered, but also you know how they're made and and. And the, the the supply chains, the raw material sourcing, and so much of the intensity is that, and 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 how our food is grown. I mean, we can change our diet, sure, absolutely, that's definitely part of it. Less meat, but ag, you know, the the to our earlier story, the nitrogen runoff on the reefs, and and the carbon emissions from tilling the soil, and uh, the energy water intensity of most crops and certainly the higher you go in the food chain. I mean, those are things that, you know, the supply side will say, well, the people want meat. We're going to, as long as they want meat, we're going to give it to them. So the demand has to change. And and the demand side to say, well, it's, you know, it's cheap and good and I like it and 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 I'm going to keep buying it, but they need to, you know, get their act together on how they produce it. <sighs> That's 
that's the dilemma. And but I I'm not absolving consumers myself high on that list. I still do eat meat uh, from time to time, not a lot, but some. Um, you know, I'm not absolving us of any responsibility here, but I do think that that it's really easy to say consumers have to change, but the mechanisms for doing that, the choices we have to change, we can stop driving, for example, um, but the ability to walk, bike, take transit, particularly right now, is not so easy. So these mm -hmm. are, you know, no surprise, incredibly complex kinds of things. I don't. We've gone off on a tangent. We should get back to the story. But but uh, but but it it's probably uh, we could do a whole show or maybe even a whole new podcast just on consumers <laughs> and all of this. Right. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, I do think that uh, you know that does start to get to the complexity of what we're up against when we look at the Paris Agreement. When we look at at making change at the systemic level, at the at the degree of change that's needed, per the uh, UNEP uh, report this week that says you know factor of thirty. So, right. So the UNEP report that that's a separate issue. The the one that's referenced here in, in um, the story that we're pointing to is um, some research from the Climate Action Tracker Initiative. And what I appreciate, like the po the slightly positive, if you will, <laughs> sign from this, um, this this research suggests that th some of the recent commitments, like China and Japan, some of the other you know countries, South Korea in that region, South Africa, Canada, those um, commitments uh, based on that happening, the the CAT, the Climate Action Tracker, estimates that we're moving closer to that to two degree Celsius um, temperature trajectory that we're trying to get towards. Um, that's not the ideal scenario, but you know, the idea is that we want to cut, cut the increases to two, at least two, you know, degrees Celsius. And with those recent commitments, we could be closer, way closer to two than we have been, right? So like we've been talking the last few years about a trajectory of 2.7 degrees to 3.7 degrees, like that was where we were, the path we were on. So that was kind of, you know, like a positive sign, you know, however, but, you know, if you will, um, the those are all such long-term targets that this 30, this 2030 timeframe that th this decade of action that we now have one-tenth of gone, right? And with a completely crazy year, that's the year we have to, we, we won't really know until, we won't really know until then if we're really gonna do it. Um, and right now the signs are that, yeah, no. So I don't know. So I, I guess I started optimistic and now I'm pessimistic. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, like move faster, people. Yeah, you know, that's kind of like where we are. Well, so. I think that's an appropriate moment now to bring up our third story, which is uh, from a group that uh, informal group. They call themselves the, the Sustainability Vets. This is a group of, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 uh, former corporate sustainability leaders at companies like Molson Coors or Alaska Airlines, uh, Symantec, Nike, Disney, Dell, Facebook, uh, and others, um, that uh, they've uh, continued to be an informal network, but they write for us from time to time and weigh in on some questions. And the question this time is, how do you avoid getting distracted and stay focused on the mission? So we have a dozen of them weighed in on that question. And it's, a, it's you know, 
I think pretty interesting. Um, uh, just to pick two or three of these, um, Bart Alexander, formerly Molson Coors, says he practices radical curiosity, trying to stay focused on the big picture. I can totally relate to that one. Uh, Mark Buckley, formerly at Staples, um, say also looks at the big picture, but uh, tries to look uh, a decade ahead uh, and uh, sees the world 10 years from now and some maybe some backcasts a little bit. Um, uh, you know, keep your grandkids in mind, sure, I guess. Um, you know, keep your head down and stay single-minded, says Cecily Joseph, who formerly head of uh, corporate responsibility at Symantec. Um, you know, when there's a, a, just a lot of commotion, either externally or within the company, just keep your head down and rather than try to exist above the fray or even coexist with it, kind of block it out. And, um, you know, when she says, I've often found that when the dust settles, I'm able to demonstrate some progress while others are just catching their breath. What, what did you like in yeah. this one, Heather? Well, I liked the ones you met. I mean, the whole thing I liked, I read it and I thought, oh, yes. And since I tend to get distracted very easily, but just because I multitask, I think multitask, you know, is it distraction or is it multitasking? I don't know. I'm sorry. Anyway, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. The, I, was, I, was, I was doing something else. What did you just say? <laughs> so the two that really stood stood out for me were um, Ellen Weinrab uh, from uh, the recruiter with Weinrab Group and uh, uh, and the co-founder of this group. She she focuses on minimizing social media time, which I totally relate to because you know with all the doom scrolling right now and and just sort of just, you know, it's very easy to get distracted on that. So she just turns it off, focuses on fresh air, go outside, you know, just kind of hunker down. And then um, another great, you know, the time, you know, the time organizer people would love this one. Schedule it in, right? <laughs> and I find that that works for me too, because sometimes I have to actually schedule time to write. Otherwise, I could spend my, my entire day doing interviews and then not have any place yeah. to and that, to. And um, that one so, came yeah, from scheduling Catherine, it in. And that one came from yes, Catherine, Catherine Winkler, Winkler, former yep. CSO yep. at EMC, and and also the co-founder of Sustainability yeah. Veterans. Well, yeah, I think I encourage people to check this out. But you know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to go outside right now. I'm here with Lauren Phipps, Director and Senior Analyst for the Circular Economy at GreenBiz. Hey, Lauren. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you, and we'll be talking about circular economy policy priorities for the incoming Biden administration, which has named addressing climate change as one of its four priorities. Um, I'm curious if you can share what the opportunities are for the new federal administration when it comes to addressing climate change and like where does the circular economy fit into that? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Really excited for this conversation. So. I guess at a high level, it's worth just noting that I don't see circular economy, that verbiage showing up in any federal policy within the next few years. Um, you know, it would be great, but it's not something I'm holding out hope for. Um, and, you know, renewable energy is certainly going to undergird the transition to a circular economy. So I don't think we should get into that today because our colleague Sarah Golden, senior energy analyst, covered that on the podcast a few weeks ago. So that's, of course, like the big priority. But the the topic that I really want to talk about today is plastics and recycling. And for so many, this is their entry point into conversations around the circular economy. And there's been a historic influx of recycling legislation in Congress. So it's top of mind for me and many others. And it's hugely consequential um, when it comes to climate as well, of course. 
Definitely. So we're going to talk about the Biden administration. That's the main reason why we're here. Um, but I know that you are a person who loves context. Um, so I'm curious if you can kind of paint the picture of where we currently are when it comes to recycling and plastics and like what the current administration has or has not been doing um, in regards to that. Yeah, so the Trump administration has done something on this, um, which I don't think everyone is really paying attention to. So most recently, um, the Save Our Seas 2.0 Act is what people are talking about. Both chambers of Congress recently passed the final version of this act, and it's now awaiting Trump's signature, and it's anticipated that he will sign it. And the big focus of this is plastic waste. Um, The bill aims to reduce and remove plastic waste in the environment, especially in waterways, and it really focuses on cleanup efforts um, and also investments in plastic recycling infrastructure. So the good part about this bill is that there is bipartisan support in Congress, and it had a unanimous vote in Senate, um, and there's a lot of positive endorsements from industry players, and in practice, um, you know, recycling infrastructure is struggling right now. Municipalities are struggling, especially during COVID. Um, and it would provide $55 million in funding each year through 2025 um, for local post-consumer materials management, which would be a huge help. I mean, it municipalities are struggling to pay for the infrastructure they need. Um, so this would be really positive. So it. It's also just worth noting this builds on another Save Our Seas Act, which came into law in 2018. Um, I won't get into all of that today. We want to talk about uh, the Biden administration, but it's just worth noting that this exists. And um, the the big issue and the big pushback, of course, which we're hoping that the Biden administration will sort of fix, is that its primary focus is end of life. And it's really on cleanup. And it's not focusing on production and it's not focusing on the amount of plastics that are continuing to flow into the environment. And um, I think the tension between cleanup versus uh, regulating the production of plastics is the real difference that we're going to see in some legislation um, that that could uh, be passed during the Biden administration. All right. So what exactly are you looking forward to with the Biden administration? It sounds like the Trump administration has kind of set some groundwork when it comes to recycling and plastics. Is there anything that Biden can do to build on that? Definitely. Um, I think he's primed for success around this. I mean, with the $2 trillion infrastructure plan, big talk on climate, and a commitment to environmental justice, I think we're really ripe for policy on plastics and recycling. And there's a couple bills that have been introduced in the last couple of years um, that will be reintroduced when the Biden administration uh, begins. But the big one that I'm focusing on is the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act um, by Senator Udall and Representative Lowenthal. Um, and it's a really an EPR bill. So it puts the financial burden of plastic pollution back onto the producers and the manufacturers who generate it and profit from it. Um, It's quite sweeping. It's very ambitious. Uh, It has um, mixed support. So very, a lot of support from environmental groups, industry groups, not so much, not surprising. Um, And under legislation, Congress would establish a nationwide container deposit system, which is extended producer responsibility for packaging. 
Um, it's also kind of controversial. I mean, there's pieces that of it that include a single-use plastic bag ban, uh, ban on utensils and straws and polystyrene service containers. So, you know, not always the most uh, broadly celebrated pieces of legislation. Um, but another part of it is an increase in content for post-consumer recycled materials um, that would gradually increase. So it's quite sweeping. It would have huge implications. Um, and it's it's definitely the biggest one that I'm looking out for to see, you know, if it is um, adopted and see where it gets in the next year or two. Well, I will be on the lookout for, if you write about this in your newsletter, or otherwise for Green Biz, um, I'm curious if there are any policy priorities outside of recycling and plastic um, related to the circular economy that you'll be looking out for. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, aside from general renewable energy transition, one that, I, that I'm curious to see if Biden does anything on, and I haven't really seen any discussion around it yet, so would would welcome an email from anyone who has. But the big piece for me is um, right to repair legislation. So this is legislation that that says, you know, as a buyer of an electronic device, of a tractor, as someone who owns something, I have the right to be able to repair it myself. I should have the design schematics to be able to do those repairs. And I should be able to purchase parts to extend the life of that product. Um, it fights designed obsolescence and um, it is really a, a huge opportunity to use our stuff better for longer. Um, it's also pretty controversial. Um, but there's been some recent wins. In November, Massachusetts actually passed a ballot measure that will force car companies to allow independent dealerships and mechanics to access the repair data, which might not sound that exciting, but it is a really big victory for right to repair legislation. Car companies like Tesla are not so thrilled about that one. Um, but I think that's just another area where, you know, if we're committed to keeping our stuff out of landfills and, and using what we have better for for longer. As I said, right to repair legislation is a huge opportunity, though, again, uh, kind of controversial, but an area that I'll be looking out for as well. Thank you so much. I feel like you offered some great insights, and I hope that you will keep tabs on what the Biden administration is doing uh, related to all of this. Thank you for coming on Green Base 350. Thank you for having me. It is an exciting time for policy around plastics and an exciting time for infrastructure. Numerous reports released this year suggest that consumer interest in environmental issues has grown stronger during the COVID-19 outbreak. For example, a Boston Consulting Group analysis published in August 2020 found that nearly 95% of those surveys believe their personal actions could help reduce unsustainable waste, tackle climate change, and protect wildlife and biodiversity. So how can big companies lean into the sentiment? One approach worth considering is the Priceless Planet Coalition, launched in January 2020 by financial services giant MasterCard. The coalition this autumn announced a major expansion, adding dozens of new members who have come together with the common goal of helping restore 100 million trees over five years. Joining GreenBiz 350 to discuss the initiative is Christina Cloverdance, Senior Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer of MasterCard. Christina, hi. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much. 
Great to have you here. So let's start with some context. What inspired the creation of this coalition and what makes it unique? When we think about climate change, MasterCard, our our business is inherently pretty clean and pretty green. We're a payments company. We're not a, we don't manufacture anything. We're not an extractives company. Um, so we have done those things um, to manage our own environmental footprint. Um, but that's not where we're actually going to have the greatest impact. And so we looked at our business model. And if you think about um, MasterCard, we have the reach to nearly 3 billion cardholders. That's what gave us the idea for the Priceless Planet Coalition. And um, when we look at climate change, regrowing um, forests at large scale is a cost-efficient um, nature-based nature solution for mitigating the impact of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Um, and so we knew that this unique positioning that MasterCard has um, with what we call our network effect um, gave us an opportunity to really um, bring something to society where we could potentially make a difference and look forward to going into more of that with yeah. you. Yeah, so, ha well, I wanna ask about the expansion first, but I want then I wanna understand how it works, right? What, 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 what the connection is with the consumer. But so it, you started, I think, with about seven or eight companies and, and now it's a, quite a substantially larger list. So why the expansion? When we announced it in January, um, we also announced the um, the commitment that along with our partners, we were committing to plant 100 million trees over five years. Um, the unique thing also, when I talked about this like network effect, is, um, is that it's not going to come through just philanthropic dollars. We know that addressing climate change is, there are not enough philanthropic dollars out there in order to do it. Um, and so it's really engaging this, this business model with our partners so that um, we execute um, these use cases, which I'll talk about because that's where it gets kind of interesting, um, in order to equate transactions to number of trees in, in tree planting. And so as you mentioned, we, um, we launched in January and, um, and then we had more and more interest of other partners saying, we've been looking into trying to do something too. How could we participate? And that grew from about a dozen partners to um, over 40 that we have with us now globally. Um, and there are many more that are interested. What MasterCard is doing is creating um, the structure for other partners to engage um, with us. And, um, and so we've actually, um, I'll just give you some examples. Um, when I mentioned that um, the the partner engagement of engaging consumers, if you think about different scenarios, um, incentivizing consumer behavior, um, you swipe with your um, MasterCard on the Metro or the Tube or the Subway and a swipe um, incentivizing public transit versus, you know, um, you know you're, you're riding your car, um, that turns into a tree planet. There are also scenarios where, you know, transaction for trees or um, uh, redeeming rewards turns into trees, um, corporate rebates. There are all these different ways 
ways that our partners are looking to engage consumers. We know consumers care, and but oftentimes they don't necessarily know what they can do to help or how just as a single individual, they can have a contribution. Um, and so this is a way that we're able to engage with them. Um, and it's going to get super exciting because um, around the globe, different partners, how they're going to activate and the campaigns that they're gonna do um, are really gonna start um, building this awareness with consumers and mm -hmm. um, the ability to engage them as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you share any what the impact has been so far? Yeah, so, so great. So if you do think back to this um, strange year of 2020, um, you know, my goodness, um, the, uh, you know, whether it was a global pandemic or economic crisis, um, uh, racial injustice, the crises that, you know, we've all been, um, you know, facing this year, um, did enable us to take a step back and really set the foundation for how we were going to go about planting um, 100 million trees. And so what we knew was vitally important um, is that there's there's a wrong way and there's a right way to go about doing this. Um, for us, it is not about just planting a tree, it's about regrowing forests. It is, yes, about the climate benefits, but it has to be more than that as well. And we're looking at um, climate, community, and biodiversity benefits as well. Um, we're a payments company, so we knew that this is not our core competency, this is not our expertise. And so it was also really important is that we look to the forestation experts um, to help guide us in this. Um, and so we are partnering with Conservation International and WRI to help us do this the right way. We also, during this um, time of COVID, wanted to continue um, as we develop the coalition um, to stay on that pulse of science and um, how critical that is um, to doing this right. And so we also created a scientific advisory committee that is guiding us as well. All these foundational things um, enabled us this year um, to set up and be ready for partner activation. The other thing that we did um, just a couple of months ago was we announced our first three um, planting uh, projects, and those are in Brazil, Kenya, and um, Australia. And so so right now, um, it's going to be exciting as we start to um, implement those. After that, we'll continue to build out and grow. Um, and what is most important for us um, is that we do these in areas that have the greatest benefit. So we'll be using the expertise on figuring out where those are. If there's anything to know about Prices Planet Coalition, and I distill it into you know kind of four four top level things. Um, what I want you to walk away with is, you know, we're after maximum impact. Restoring, you know, um, our forests is considered to be one of the most effective methods of mitigating climate change. And um, the next is consumer participation. This is where you have so many conversations out there um, about how to finance climate change, and they're vitally important, but oftentimes we found that the consumer as a stakeholder is being left out of that equation. And so this is a way that we can begin to engage consumers. Um, it's also this network effect that I talked about. And so if you think about MasterCard, our positioning, there are then the banks and the issuers, there are the merchants and the retailers, and on deck the consumers. And that's a really unique position that we have. And then the fourth thing um, is that 
it, this is actually part of our product roadmap at MasterCard. And so instead of it being, um, as a chief sustainability officer, my little side project, this is actually part of our product roadmap strategic of our business. Um, because you can see how with those partners, it's part of our, our business model. Um, and so it's actually two of our um, executive sponsors, our chief digital officer, and also our um, executive pri uh, vice president of um, customer delivery. And so that tells you that this is not just a side project, but it really is part of our business model. Got it. Got it. I have two more questions for you. One is, you know, if you think about consumer behavior, businesses are consumers too, right? So there's a lot of business uh, spending that goes on. And I'm just curious how business spending might corporate spending might might factor here is that is that is that something that a benefit a company could benefit from so absolutely. Um, so yes, when, I mean, when we actually think about MasterCard, MasterCard is, we think of ourselves as B2B to C, um, uh, you know, company. And so absolutely with our corporate card partners um, as well. And some of them are some of our early coalition um, card members. And so, you know, what what is also interesting coming down the pipe um, that next year we'll be excited to share with everyone is if you think about from a consumer perspective, um, what we're going to be able to do is start to help bring awareness to the consumer of if you think about your purchases, right now we know how much a purchase costs, the financial contribution or impact. Um, but what we'll be able to do is share with consumers the carbon impact of their purchases. That first step is that awareness. Um, and so remember when, you know, before we had wearables and knew how many steps you took in a day, um, you know, you didn't know that 10,000 was the threshold. Or before you went into, you know, a Starbucks and saw how many calories were, you know, on the croissant. Um, did that change everybody's, you know, choice in what you got? No, but some you might divert and change. So by that first step of awareness of our own carbon impact of our purchases, um, then we're going to be enabling um, consumers to learn how they can shift that, but then also how they can contribute um, to compensate for their impact. And so in turn, then, you know, planting trees and it becomes this opportunity to be part of the full cycle um, of, you know, contributing back to the planet. Got it. So trees, trees are one of my favorite topics. Um, but I'm curious, how might we see this effort focused on addressing other climate change issues? So for example, will it be all about trees in the future? Or could we see this applied to water projects or other things? I love I, I love the question because um, to me you know trees are the initial you know vehicle in which you know we're contributing and it's a it provides, especially for a consumer, a very one-to-one, -one, you know, comparison so that you can understand that. But we also know that addressing, you know, climate change, as you've said, um, there's so many other areas. And, um, and so I will say, you know, stay tuned because there will be, you know, expansions and, um, and we'll be interested to, you know, come back um, over time and talk about those with you. Okay, I'll take you up on that in the future. Thank you for being here with us today, Christina. Thanks so much, Heather. Really appreciate it. You just heard from Christina Cloverdance, Senior Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer of MasterCard. Saturday, December 12th marks the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement. 
the International Climate Action Accord that guides national emissions reduction strategies to limit global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius below pre-industrial levels. Representatives from the signatories were supposed to be in Glasgow, Scotland this month to discuss commitments and progress, but the COVID-19 pandemic has turned that gathering into a virtual affair. While the Paris Pact is technically focused on countries, many companies, of course, use it to guide their corporate sustainability strategies, and many have declared net zero by 2050 goals guided by science to do their part. As of September 2020, there had been 1,500 such proclamations. And even though the U.S. is technically not a party to the Paris Agreement, more than 4,000 cities, states, businesses, tribal nations, and other organizations still support it through the We Are Still In campaign. Joining me to chat about the anniversary is Maria Mendeluthe, CEO of the We Mean Business Coalition, one of the nonprofits behind that movement. Maria, thank you for joining Green Biz 350. Thank you, Heather. A pleasure to be with you today. So my first question is, what does We Mean Business consider to be the most positive or notable sign of progress against the Paris Agreement mitigation goals over the past five years? Where are we actually making progress? So we have uh, seen in the latest months that nearly half of the major economies and emitters in the G20 countries have net zero targets, which are backed by business. In fact, business has had a fundamental role in what we call the ambition loop, because business, since 2015, when only a handful of pioneering businesses have stood up and had an influence on the development and backing the Paris Accord, since then, there's going to have been thousands of businesses that have uh, stepped up their game. So today, there are 1,400 companies that have committed to science-based targets, renewable energy, electric vehicles, etc. They represent one-fourth of global GDP. The Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is an initiative where companies set uh, targets to reduce their emissions aligned with the Paris Agreement, has now more than 1,000 a, a signatories. Renewal 100 has close to 300 uh, companies and so on and so forth. We have seen, for example, on the Climate Pledge, the latest development is that the signatories want to be net zero by 2040. So there is a race to net zero and companies are standing up, are backing governments so that they can go further. But not only that, on the technology side, we have seen great progress. Yeah, I remember back in, in Paris that actually I was with in one event with Greenpeace around five years ago, and we were starting to say that renewables um, were competitive. Well, now they are competitive. Mm -hmm. They are competing against yeah. oil, gas, and others. Uh, electric vehicles will be competitive by 2024. So we do see that not only business and governments are stepping up, the technologies already are competitive to be deployed. Yeah. And you, you know, and I love those examples. Thank you for that. And many of those examples are backed by large companies, right? So some of the world's biggest businesses. And um, one thing that I wonder is, is that enough, right? So we seem to have this courageous subset of, of the world's businesses that, that do these things. How do we get the majority of, of companies involved with this movement? I think you're right. Certainly, it's not enough, but it's great to have. Um, one of the things, as the new CEO of the Women Business Coalition, 
that I'm uh, committed to push forward is that we mainstream net zero across geographies, across sectors, and across also uh, business sizes. So it is important that we bring uh, SMEs along into this journey. I think we need a strong policy. So that's why it is important that on the 12th anniversary, when countries meet virtually, we see more countries stepping up their NDCs as part of the ratchet mechanism of the Paris Accord. This uh, climate action is good for business. It's good for business because less CO2 is less cost for business. More renewables and more electric vehicles is good for having more revenues as a company. And the, the financial community is seeing this, and we're seeing that the companies that perform well, that are doing their homeworks on climate action and sustainability, have a better performance and are preferred assets for some of these companies. So there is a race, and business, they like to be in the race, and they like to win the race. And so as, as much as the leading and big multinationals are leading in that race, they do need SMEs, they, knew, they do need their supply chain because the, what is called the scope three emissions uh, that come from the supply chain are around 90, 95% of, of their emissions. Yeah. So that's why we have launched in, in September the SME Climate Hub to facilitate uh, SMEs coming into the journey through, through, through ways of committing to be net zero providing incentives, providing tools, etc. So please, for those that listen, I welcome you to go and see because we are going to put more things on the website, more tools are going to be announced this week. Obviously, this still is not enough because the actions that business and SMEs are doing need to come back to policymakers. They need to provide them the confidence that they can do better policies. And in that respect, and in the current context, the green recovery is very important. It's very important that the green recovery and the stimulus packages are directed towards uh, green solutions. This is good for business, it's good for the economy, and it's good for jobs. Consumer interest also uh, is, is really growing in climate issue and in climate action. And more investors and other stakeholders are calling for better transparency, both on goals and progress toward them. So what best practices can companies follow to improve their disclosure without engaging in greenwashing? I think your question is very relevant. We are recommending companies to disclose according to the Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosure so that the finance community can assess the risk of the company, both in terms of the transition and in, in terms of the physical risk of climate change. As part of this framework, setting science-based targets is really important. And hence, we are encouraging companies to, to set those targets and to disclose regularly against uh, those targets. Um, we're also asking companies to speak about what they're doing, to recognize you know, when there are issues and to, and, and to speak to all the communities with whom they operate, so they inspire others. Unfortunately, there is a lot of uh, you know, uh, suspicion sometimes when business comes with a statement of greenwashing. And when I hear this, I also like to re remind us all that actually we should be more worried about those that are not doing anything. Okay? Mm -hmm. 
and say, and, yeah. and companies need to make sure that when they communicate, they communicate about what they're doing and where the challenges are, because transparency is going to be really important for, for increased accountability. Yeah. And actually, the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures, is celebrating its fifth anniversary as well this, this month. So um, that's good. To go back to the U.S. for a moment, President-elect Joe Biden has announced his intention to bring the country back into the accord when he takes office in January 2021. So how important is U.S. participation and how much progress, is, how much progress can a business make without without clearer federal and national policies. How much, how important are those national policies? Thank you. So I believe that uh, climate action is good for America. Uh, I think um, uh, the US likes uh, to compete and likes to be part of the race. And I could not imagine uh, the US standing on the side and seeing how the uh, Europe and China, Japan, South Korea, you know, are getting into the race to zero and are developing technologies, are future-proofing their economies. You have mentioned in your introduction that there are 4,000 leaders as part of the world still in that have been uh, working on developing um, climate action plans in the US in, a, in, an, in an environment where uh, policies were not there, or even, you know, the, the, the president, uh, U.S. president withdraw from the Paris Agreement. But it's funny to see as well, funny, it's interesting to see that five of the six biggest companies in the world have net zero targets. And those five companies are American companies. And so I think the corporate world is, is ready uh, to catch up. I think the U.S. government, the new U.S. government has a lot to catch up and, uh, and to lead. So I anticipate that there's going to be a lot of um, policy and regulations that are going to come to play. And I think this is good for business. I think um, the, the incoming um, government uh, should work closely with those leaders that have been there uh, advocating as part of what we are still in so that we can go faster. I think the US government should mainstream climate action uh, well beyond the typical environmental policies. This is an economic issue. This is a financial issue. This is a people issue. And they need to bring SMEs along. I don't think climate change is partisan. I think it affects us all. And, uh, and I, think, um, I think it is time. We're very much looking forward to see progress in the US and we stand ready to, to support that progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One final question for you. What are the most important actions that companies can take over the next five years to decarbonize really hard to abate activities such as transportation, agriculture, or, or industrial operations, right? How and how important are cross-sector alliances and pre-competitive collaboration to getting there? Yes. So I think first I'm going to talk about what a company can do uh, alone and then what it needs to be done do with others. So alone, if a company wants to lead on climate, we, we did a report, it's called Climate Leadership Now, and we give a, a step approach on, on companies that want to lead on climate, which includes four, the four A's. The first one is ambition. So set ambition that is aligned with Paris. The second one is action, report, a progress on action. The third one is advocacy, 
speak you know, with policymakers, defend the policy progress in, in those areas, and uh, yeah, don't have incoherent uh, policy strategy where you say that you're going to do something in one place and you do something else in another place. And the last one is accountability that we mentioned before. The companies then, they also need to integrate this climate action into their company strategy. It's an interesting program, SOS 1.5, by the World Business Council for Sustainable Development that helps companies and guide companies through that process. Then they need to let their voice be heard. And that's where they can do with others. We have seen in the past three months, 1,200 company leaders sending different letters to us governments to ask for a green recovery. This is very powerful. This gives uh, governments the confidence that they can deploy uh, policies in, in that direction. And the fourth element is innovation. And for that, companies need to innovate themselves and it's very competitive and it's good that it's competitive. But we know that they also need to collaborate with others because the scope three emissions that I mentioned before, the scope three emissions of any companies are scope three emissions of other companies and that requires collaboration across the ecosystem, development of technologies that will help scale up technologies that are still in the pilot phase, creation of buyers clubs where we can provide an incentive for companies to, to, to sell uh, low carbon products because there is a demand there, like the still zero work that the climate group has done. So I think, um, yeah, climate is it's a competitive issue, but it's also a collaborative issue. And we have seen fierce competitors, uh, and we will see fierce competitors compete, but also collaborate because climate affects us all. And it's the one thing where collaboration is urgently needed. Thank you. Thank you, Maria, for being here on Greenbiz 350. Thanks a lot uh, for the opportunity to be with you. You just heard from Maria Mendiluthe, the CEO of We Mean Business. The December issue of the journal Health Affairs focuses on the intersection of climate change and health. Among the topics it covers are the emissions from the healthcare industry itself, the potential of a circular supply chain for medical devices, and how climate change should be included in training healthcare clinicians. It seems an opportune time to be talking about public health, so joining me now is Alan Weil, the Editor-in-Chief of Health Affairs. Hey, Alan. Hi, it's nice to be here. So it does seem an interesting time to be talking about climate change, and it is, after all, the middle of a pandemic. Was that strategic in putting out this issue? Uh, no, I can't say it was. Uh, we plan our theme issues more than a year in advance, and if you look back a year, we did not see this coming. So uh, I don't want to call it fortuitous because, of course, it's a calamity that we're in the midst of, but, uh, but it, it is pure coincidence. Well, one of the articles we talked about is, is the supply chain issue, and it says that more than 80% of greenhouse gas emissions from the healthcare industry uh, is, is a result from its supply chain, uh, with pharmaceuticals and chemicals being about a fifth of, of the pollution. What do you see being able to be done about that? Well, we have a paper that discusses uh, quality improvement, which is a major movement in healthcare as sort of a template for how to think about addressing the environmental effects of the healthcare sector. So, you know, it's well known in all fields that uh, 
what gets measured uh, gets attention and having goals is a primary motivation for improvement. So one of the challenges I think in healthcare when it comes to environmental issues is it, it's not central to the business model. It's not central to the goals of the system. The goals of the system are to improve health. Um, and I think what, if you take a few of the papers together in this issue say is, you know, wait a minute, uh, Healthcare as a sector is a huge contributor to waste, uh, not just carbon emissions, but other forms of waste. And if we wanna make a change here, the way to do it is to acknowledge that impact and then make improvements with respect to environmental impacts part of the core mission of the health sector. You don't wanna harm your patients through infections. You don't wanna harm them through lousy quality care and you don't wanna harm them by uh, having what you do every day make the environment uh, less health healthy for them. So that's a long way of saying um, if hospitals, for example, which are a third of the spending in the healthcare system, more than a well over a trillion dollar portion of the economy, if part of their metrics have to do with emissions and emissions associated with the supply chain of all of the equipment they buy and use and throw away, that creates a, a basis for analyzing the problem, coming up with solutions and keeping an eye on your progress. And if you don't do that, you're just going to see this as part of the cost of doing business. But if you create some metrics and, and put some focus on it, then that's the first step in doing something about it. I was intrigued by the idea of one of the papers around modifying school lunch menus in a way that could improve children's health, of course, but along the way, reduce the considerable impact of food and ag on climate. What was the big takeaway there? Yeah, so this is a paper I really like. Of course, I like all the papers, but this one really did jump out for me. You know, uh, I did not know that uh, as much as a third of global emissions are associated with food production and, and distribution. I, I've always thought of food as a source of environmental uh, impact, but I did not realize it was that large. Uh, you, your introduction to this topic was right on. We tend to think, and, and, and the, the U.S. standards around school lunches are built around um, uh, nutrition, nutritional value. You're serving primarily kids uh, for, for uh, many of these kids that, that lunch supplied at school could be 30% of their caloric intake. So you think, you know, how do we give these kids a healthy meal that they'll eat uh, so that they can be uh, grow up and, and ha have the nutrition they need? Um, the Eat Lancet Commission took a second uh, angle which is how do we think about a healthy diet from the perspective of, of planetary health and environmental health? And what these authors did is they basically mapped these two together. They looked at school lunches and then they looked at the eat uh, healthy guidelines and said, you know, we could be providing a nutritional meal that had a lot less negative impact on the environment. And, uh, um, they, at least based on the data they had, which were imperfect, they also see some of the substitutions that could occur there to, to save money. One of the takeaways in the paper is that the allocation for these lunches is $3.81 a meal. That includes distribution and everything, not just the food. That's not much money. 
And so uh, coming up with healthy, healthful options as well as affordable options is a priority. This is for 30 million kids a day. Uh, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Another one of the articles, and there are about 20 in this issue on healthcare and climate change, talked about the circular supply chain for medical uh, devices. And, and one of the barriers it, it pointed out was the perception regarding the uh, infection prevention be uh, behaviors of health care professionals. Um, how much of is perception a challenge in, in something like uh, medical devices where obviously, you know, health and steriliz sterilization and all of that is, is primary? Uh, do you see pathways through that? Well, healthcare is filled with perception guiding practice. Uh, we like to think of clinicians as practicing evidence-based medicine, and obviously that is what they do, but part of the human brain is designed to take experience and anecdote and sometimes uh, give it a little more weight than a document you read that is a randomized controlled trial, which really is the gold standard for evidence. Um, we also know that there have been many infectious outbreaks uh, in the hospital setting. There's been huge pressure to reduce uh, healthcare-acquired infections, which are a, a leading source of, of harm and, and death. Uh, so, so the attention to infection is completely understandable, um, but you want to do that in an evidence-based way. It, it, this paper and the issues it raises run everything from, you know, gloves. Anyone who's been to a doctor's office recently, the, the clinician walks in, they, they wash their hands or they use a hand sanitizer. They're single use gloves that get thrown away. Um, all sorts of materials are, are used just once, but, but there also are very large expensive pieces of equipment that have to be sterilized between uses and the way those occur and how effective they are is, is central to the practice of medicine. Um, you know, akin to what we just spoke about, uh, we know that clinicians just like anyone else will change their behavior over time as they learn the, that there are different ways to do things and that there's evidence that will support them. But until you feel comfortable with the evidence, you do tend to, to, to look at you know, your own experience, which as I say, is a type of evidence, it's just anecdotal. And uh, we could really use more information here. I was struck by the claim in the paper that there is not really an evidence base to suggest that uh, healthcare acquired infections are, are lower when you, when you use some of these single use products. And if, if that could be brought more broadly known in the health uh, care community, I suspect it would make a difference. Uh, knowledge doesn't change everything, but it, it's often the first step. Well, that leads me to my last question, Alan. What do you see as the opportunity for medical professionals to be educating not just patients, but one another or in, in, internally, externally, upstream and downstream about the connection between climate change and public health? I mean, after all, we're talking about in increases of everything from allergies and asthma to cancer and heart disease, not to mention, of course, the next potentially deadly virus. Is there an opening and an opportunity for health professionals to become, in effect, uh, climate advocates? I think there's a tremendous opportunity, and we have a nice piece in the issue uh, about how uh, students in medical school have pushed to get climate on the curriculum. Um, and, you know, in climate change, as with most environmental issues, there's this 
sort of division or tension between individual behavior and systemic behavior. So we ask individuals to recycle materials at home. We tell people to, you know, commute with a partner or, or now, of course, no one's commuting at all. Um, but the largest output of all emissions is always through industrial uh, processes and large systems that we as individual consumers have very little control over. And so to me, although I think there is definitely a role here for the individual clinician and the individual patient to understand how they could change their behavior, there's also a need as we're training the next generation of clinician leaders and as they take leadership roles in, whether it's hospitals or health systems or device manufacturers or pharmaceutical manufacturers, that, that if they're putting an increasing part of their own attention to how the systems that they run or the systems that they're a part of have an effect on, the, on climate and emissions, that's going to transform uh, the, these, the, the emissions levels much more rapidly in a much more dramatic way than individual behavior. So, so we have to sort of pair individual education with systemic education, systemic opportunities. And the fact that the, that the newest generation of clinicians is coming in, paying more attention to this issue, I think bodes well for more metrics in the healthcare sector, which is such a large source of carbon emissions and other forms of pollution and waste. The, the fact that they're paying more attention to this, I think bodes well for systemic change as well as individual change. Yeah, we're talking about the December issue of Health Affairs Journal, 20 or so articles about the connection between climate change and, and health. Alan Weil is its editor-in-chief. Thanks so much for talking to us, Alan. Thank you, Joel, for having me. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you'll find out more about them. We always love to hear from you, your comments, your questions and tips. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week. I think we have two more editions coming up uh, this year before we take a little bit of a holiday break. Another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce set a goal to support and mobilize the conservation, restoration, and growth of 100 million trees by 2030. For more information, please visit salesforce.com trees. This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com.